This episode of See Here is brought to you by Cherry Bombs All Night Long. to episode 20. 20, I tell you. That's two times ten. Four times wow. five. I know my arithmetic, guys. You're listening to See Here, episode 20. We're the film discussion podcast that focuses on films where music is somehow part of the subject matter. Why? Because we like films and we like music, and we thought it was a good combination. Anyway, I'd like to introduce my two co-hosts. On what time is it there? On the uh, on British time. Gosh, I'm sound like an idiot. Uh, sticky time. Sticky time. Stop. Sticky time. We have Bernard. It's sticky always off. sticky time. <laughs> Hello there. Good. Uh, no, yeah, well, technically it is morning for you, isn't it? Well, it's good morning. It's twenty past midnight, and I'm slightly drunk. So um, let's do this. You're not, you're, not, right. you're not working hard enough there. Should be more drunk. <laughs> He's hardly working. Mm, hardly That's working. right. And on South Korean time, Mr. Tim Merrill. Good morning, Tim. Howdy. How you doing there? I'm, I'm just fine and dandy. And my name is Morris, in case I hadn't mentioned that. Usually at this stage, I'd be introducing our fourth member of the crew, which is Wendy Freeman. Uh, however, Wendy is a very, very, very busy lady. And she has two podcasts, and she's working in a band and teaching and doing so many other things. And I think basically at this stage, doing a third podcast was just a whole lot of work for her. We're going to miss her, but thank you so much, Wendy, for being part of uh, See Here up until now. And uh, the rest of us are just going to um, troop on because um, we have much to say. So uh, anyway, if you've tuned in to uh, hear Wendy's dulcet tones, we hope that you stick with us. But uh, she has her two other excellent podcasts, The Trashy Trio and Double Page Spread. So um, please continue to follow the podcasting fortunes of Wendy Freeman. For now, See Here troops on and we have two films. Two films, I tell you. That's two times one. There I go with the arithmetic again. Uh, that we're going to discuss because we didn't have an episode out in August. So we decided we're going to do two films this month to make up for uh, our loss in August. Both of these are requests from members of our community. Uh, the first one is a film from 1962, as requested by your good friend Cameron Towler. Tim? Yeah. Uh, Cam's always been known for his good taste. Well, I'll certainly have to agree with that. Um, I will reveal more about my thoughts as we discuss the film, but yes, uh, right off the bat, I think he's picked a really good in here. Uh, All Night Long from 1962. And then in the second half of the show, we're going to be discussing a film from listener Bree Edwards, who's gone and picked for us a documentary about the band The Runaways, a film called Edge Players, directed by uh, their ex-bass player, or their, well, the second bass player for the group, Vicky Tischler-Blue. So we'll have something to say about that in the second half of the show. So what we'll do is we'll play the trailer for all night long, and uh, we'll be back in a moment to uh, discuss all things jazz We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to See Here. 
evening. Tonight I'm giving a party, and I'd like you to come along. You'll meet some fascinating people and hear some great music. As a matter of fact, we're celebrating the first wedding anniversary of the famous band leader, Aurelius Rex. A year ago today, he married the fabulous Delia Lane, and the world of jazz lost one of its best-loved singers. Among the guests is Johnny Cousin, Rex's drummer, a brilliant musician, but utterly ruthless in his struggle for success. Look, Delia, you're not the kind of girl to wait in the wings. You want to work. You want it so much, you can taste it. But Johnny, you don't need me. Yes, I do. It's exactly what I do need, Delia. This is Cass Michaels, top sax player. Very good friend of Rex and Delia, and uh, rumor has it, especially Delia. The world's top jazz men are coming. That brilliant instrumentalist, Dave Brubeck. sax played like that, you don't need me to tell you that it's Johnny Dankworth. Have you heard any gossip about my wife? Gossip? You heard me. You know what I mean. to see here episode 20 and we're going to spend the first half of the show discussing a film from 1962 directed by one Basil Dearden a film called All Night Long and I don't think it's any secret if you've sort of like been following the posts on uh, our Facebook page if you even if you knew nothing about this film that it's basically William Shakespeare's Othello as translated to 1962 early 1960s London and the story of Othello is uh, placed into, well, not a jazz club, but at a party hosted by a whole lot of jazz musicians and uh, and their friends. And it's got some... Uh, uh, let's go through a little bit of the cast list because there's some really quite wonderful people here. So you've got Patrick McGowan, uh, he of Danger Man. The Prisoner. Danger, the Prisoner. And a, a film I was uh, watching the other day, Scanners. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, he's playing as uh, Johnny Cousin. 
the evil drummer, and I, I thought, hang on, that's a that's a, a, a strange concept. You don't get evil drummers. Drummers are supposed to be the heroes of movies. But here's playing uh, what was the Iago character from the original Othello. Uh, Keith Michelle. Now, there was an actor who I hadn't heard from since I was a kid. My sister was crazy about Keith Michelle. We watched uh, The Six Wives of Henry VIII, and he was also uh, in a, a production, I think a London production of Man of La Mancha. We had the records of that. Uh, and he's playing as Cass Michaels. And uh, in Othello, the character was called Michael Cassio. Uh, Paul Harris. Do you think he looked, um, sorry, do you think uh, Keith Michelle looks a little like a, uh, a young Charles Napier? It's Charles Napier and a bit of Roddy McDowell. It's, it's, yeah, the, absolutely. it's the teeth. Yeah. It's, the, it's definitely the teeth. Jawline, yeah, yeah. Uh, Richard Attenborough. Richard Attenborough, director of shitloads of films as uh, Rod, Rod Hamilton. And it's not as directly obvious, but I think he's playing the Rodrigo character from uh, Othello. Uh, Paul Harris, who had appeared in uh, Truck Turner and across 110th Street, a film I absolutely oh, yeah. adore. As, uh, Did a Barrett. few black exploitation flicks, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, uh, really? uh, so, you know, those, those are the only two that I've seen that um, I remember him from. But, uh, yeah, he's in, the, he's in the Mac as well, which is a oh, good Oh, really? One. Okay. Uh, so he's playing as Aurelius Rex, which is the Othello character. And finally, the other uh, main character, Marty Stevens, as uh, Delia Lane, and she's a Desdemona character. And she'd done such other stellar work as being in The Love Boat and Emergency Ward 10 and Kojak. I have to say, she's really beautiful in this. Oh, she is. She definitely is. They had some real jazz musicians. It's uh, nice mm-hmm. to see that they had they had a good combination, like the, the actors who played as jazz musicians. So you, you're Keith Michelle and Paul Harris, they acquit themselves well at looking like musicians and Patrick McGowan, um, he must have taken some tuition from a drummer to look like how a drummer should really sort of set himself up around the kids. But they also had uh, real life jazz musicians like Charles Mills oh, yeah. and Dave Brubeck and the great John Dankworth. Uh, who right. you know, only had a couple of lines here and there, but you know, tended to acquit themselves well. So I, I, I wanted to say something first, you know, that sure. I, I've always, I always think it's kind of funny how, you know, a lot of films from the past incorporated real musicians. Like, you know, um, a lot of times when movies would be advertised, it would say featuring like Bill Haley in the comments or featuring blah, 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 you know. And they, and they do say, you know, in, in the opening credits of this film, the music of, you know, and they, they do give the credits to the real musicians. Mm-hmm. But I like, but I like the way they really incorporated, um, you know, the way they did it. Where you know, Mingus is just sitting there, and he's the first guy there, and right. and then and then the party uh, host he walks in, and he's just like, oh hey Charlie, oh hey, well, how's it going? You want some scotch? Oh sure, don't mind if I do, you know. <laughs> and they're just and they're just sitting there shooting the shit, and it, it's just so the way that he's introduced is it, it's not gaudy or it's not and it's the same thing with dave brubeck dave brubeck walks in the door and it's just like oh hey dave hey you know come in on a set yeah sure why not you know that's and something I'm say it's very natural they, uh, yeah it's totally natural mm. when uh dave brubeck walks in and same with johnny dankworth as well you kind of hear some uh i don't know if it's looped in adr or something but you you hear a voice saying uh hey it's johnny dankworth yeah, yeah. And then, hey, Dave Brubeck's made it. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right. Which I thought was quite nice. Yeah, but it was just, I like... But it was overdone, was it? No, no, but I like the way that they just brought them in. I mean, it was just... Yeah. And, and it was almost the way that it was shot like that. It's almost the way, like, with jazz ensembles, where, you know, people come in 
and they they get a spotlight you know like the featured yeah. you know yeah it's not it's not done where you know and ladies and gentlemen blah 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 you know it's like no they just come in they play their part and then they're out you know i mean like i just yeah. thought it was really well done the way that they were introduced let's talk a little bit about the actual story because uh, we haven't mm-hmm. sort of gone to say it for people who might not be familiar with uh, the original Othello. And I've got to confess, I wasn't before this. I'm not a big Shakespeare guy. I love King Lear, and but, you know, Henry V sent me to sleep. I went and watched the Orson Welles version of Othello just to sort of get a comparison. And I'll talk a little bit about that later on. But uh, look, basically, the story... That's in dedication its, uh, and research. I, I, I like to think so. I like to think so. You know, I'm dedicated yeah. to this podcast. Good for you, Morris. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I'd like... So, so let's talk a little bit about uh, what the story actually is. So the film, uh, it's all set in the one venue. Uh, it's the home of uh, a wealthy jazz patron, played by uh, Richard Attenborough. And it gives it the feel of a play, which is you know, a personal choice whether that feels constrictive or not. But you know, for me, I, I thought it still worked. So uh, for those who are unfamiliar with... For those unfamiliar with Othello, um, uh, All Night Long tells a story of an evening where a group of friends gather to uh, celebrate the first wedding anniversary of Delia and Rex. He's a pianist and band leader and she's a retired singer and she's retired to please her possessive husband. Uh, Rex's drummer is a character called Johnny Cousins who wants to basically secure the use of Delia for his own band. He wants to break away, form his own band. He can only get financial backing if Delia is his singer. Uh, he asks her to join, she says no, so he has to, he basically has to come up with a cunning plan and, and lie and cheat and do all sorts of nasty things, you know, very surreptitiously and pit people once again, uh, pit people against each other so he can secure her services even if it means breaking up a marriage uh, and he has to have a fall guy. So that's basically the plot and um, it's you know, more or less very similar to what the actual Othello is, except Othello wasn't you know, set with groovy jazz musicians. So, okay, so first thoughts, gentlemen. Um, Sticky. Um, do you know, I'm, I'm surprised this film isn't more well-known. Um, I mean, I'd not heard of it before we, uh, you know, we were asked to uh, to cover this one. Mm. Um, and considering the um, the calibre of the, uh, the musicians in it, um, and just the quality of the film itself... Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really surprised this is uh, this isn't out there in some nice little Criterion edition or something. Well, actually, uh, I, I read really that enjoyed it. it. I'd, I'd read somewhere that it actually did get a Criterion release uh, maybe about four or five years oh, ago. Oh, really? I, I don't know if that's... Maybe it was a very limited release or something like that, but I had... Probably it was, I think back in 2011. Way. So I was going to say, it's on uh, YouTube, isn't it? But uh, mm-hmm. other than that, it's quite tricky to track down, it seems. So, But uh, yeah, it had a um, almost had a kind of noir-y feel to it. Certainly that opening scene where uh, Dickie Attenborough pulls up in his car, uh, you know, through the, the kind of rain-drenched streets of London with the ominous clouds overhead. Right. Um, you know, things aren't uh, going to go well. The opening music, composed by a fellow called Philip Green, is very noirish. You know, the the heavy percussive yeah. the horns. It's it's out of place. Not not out of place with uh, the the film at all, but sort of very different from the jazz that's played on set. Like as, when the jazz band arrives at the party, it's it's very much this is music for the film as opposed to music for the party, and it's very noirish. Very noirish. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just the way it's shot as well, you know, some real sort of stark black and whites, a lot of shadows, and just that, I mean, you know, obviously it comes from the play, but that kind of feeling of uh, impending doom um, is pretty 
is pretty strong. You know things aren't going to work out well. So uh, definitely got a noir kind of feel, yeah. Mm. Had, had, had either of you um, read or watched a version of Othello previously? It sounds like you hadn't, Sticky, but Tim, had you? No, I, I haven't at all. No. Oh, yeah, I, I studied Othello in high school, and then, you know, I'd seen BBC productions of it afterwards. Right. And, so, and you know, I, so I was going to say... This, watch, watching this, how did um, you feel like it compared as, as a, an adaptation? Did you think that this was a particularly good adaptation? Did it live up to your uh, memories of... Uh, studying Othello? I mean, I'm, I'm on the presumption that you enjoyed Othello originally when you studied it. Oh, yeah. I thought that this was a really neat way to kind of, you know... I mean, it's so funny when you look at... Um, what was it? Uh, it was that retelling of uh, Romeo and Juliet with DiCaprio. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And how they tried to just kind of hip it up, you know, for a modern audience or for a younger audience. And, and sometimes, you know, I mean, I think that I've always said this about good music as well, that um, you know when you've got a good song, when you can basically play it in so many different ways or so many different styles and it still comes out great, it still retains its its initial kind of, uh, its initial power, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same thing with Shakespeare, with a lot of Shakespeare, you know, it, you know, it can be done in a modern way and it still retains, you know, its initial um, allure. And I think that this film really does. And at the time of Shakespeare, like you have to understand, like Othello was a Moor and the Moors, you know, came from Africa up into Europe, into Spain and Portugal. And that's, you know, the initial uh, reason, the circumstance of, of Othello being, you know, African. And uh, but what's funny is that, you know, you look at how this is all meant to take place in England this uh, production mm-hmm. all night long and, I'm, and, and you know, the first time I sat and watched this I thought to myself there's no way that they could have made this in the United States at this time because it, it, it was just too uh, I don't know I, I think the, you know, we've talked about this before in the past where the Europeans really had a nonchalant attitude about race you know, they really could care less Whereas the, the, the whole idea of race meant nothing in this film. There was right, uh, right. whereas yeah, you know, Shakespeare's yeah. original, you know, uh, but there was there was racism against right uh, sure. against Othello. But sure, um, sure, but sure. Rex's character, it's it's no it's no issue apart from one it's, line in the film, which right bring up. I, I think. But it's said, for Johnny for Johnny Cousins. It's just about personal gain. Yes, that's it. You know, but I but I was gonna say though, just watching this and just the it was really refreshing to see the attitude, you know, and just and it and it just kind of reminded me actually of a film that we did in the past, you know, with Round Midnight. Yes, just the, just the idea of you know how so many jazz musicians like you know like the race uh, barrier was just totally you know brought down in terms of all these uh, crackerjack musicians and the love of music you know but like i said you know i could not see this film being made in north america for north american audiences at that time sadly to say yeah i think you're right i mean i think even if it was made today they would you know that angle would be played up a lot more yeah yeah i I don't necessarily i don't necessarily agree with that i think maybe 
maybe up to 20 years ago, uh, that angle might have been played up more. But I, I like to, I don't know, maybe it's the optimist in me, likes to think that in 2015, yeah, well. it wouldn't be a big deal even in North America nowadays. Right. But no, it's, um, it's a great, it's a very, um, I mean, they do take liberties, of course. I mean, you know, but that's the thing with Shakespeare is, you know, I mean, there's no... What, what I think is really funny is that you you get two kinds of people, I think, that look at Shakespeare. There's the people that go by the book and they're the purists, you know, that say, well, this is this is the way, he, you know, the bard meant it to be uh, presented and, you know, and that kind of thing. I mean, you get these sticking in, in the ass types and then you get the other side of it where people say, well, you know, Let's see how far we can, you know, go out on the ledge with with the original idea, the original concept, the conceit, and, and let's see how far we can take it while at the same time kind of keeping its framework. Right, right. I, I was actually sort of thinking about this um, um, a couple of weeks ago, wondering how many films are there where they're they're adaptations of Shakespeare, and what I mean is not necessarily taking the original Shakespeare text and putting it into a modern context. But the only other film that I can think of, and I'm sure, but I'm sure there are more, that has a Shakespearean story. Actually, sorry, I can think of two, and you know, an all-new dialogue. It's the story that they've taken, but using all-new dialogue. So not like you were talking about Romeo and Juliet, Tim. That's still you know Shakespearean dialogue. Whereas uh, there's right. this, there's uh, Akira Kurosawa's Ran, and, oh, yeah. and there's West Side Story. Oh, sorry, Ran, which is right. doing King Lear. And West Side Story, right. which mm-hmm. is doing Romeo and Juliet. But can you guys think of any other films which do something well, like that? to be fair, I mean, you know, you, you look at the whole noir genre in itself. Noir is just completely Shakespeare at epic proportions, you know. I mean, the idea of the rise and the fall and, you know, the, the backhanded dealings and, you know, the deceit, yeah. all of it. I mean, I don't think that there would be a, a, a noir genre without Shakespeare. Right. I think uh, Shakespeare kind of, uh, he, he, well, he didn't deal in archetypes. It's the kind of plays that he wrote have since become archetypes. So there's elements of, uh, right. of uh, you know, a lot of what he did in, you know, drama in general, whether it be theatrical drama or TV or, or film. You know, he was one of the great storytellers and i think a lot of uh, you know a lot of what's happened since has been based on, on what he did and i think one thing that's important to remember is that with shakespeare's productions all of them they hit both the highs and the lows and what i what i mean by that is that there were you know elements of them that were meant for the higher classes or the uh, the more mm-hmm the more uh, educated, where at the same time, a lot of Shakespeare's productions were very guttural and very street level. And and a lot of the concepts were the things that people just understood. I mean, jealousy and lust and deception and, and murder and all of these things. They're not just things that were strictly you know, attributed to the aristocracy or the higher, you know, the up and ups. Nice. I mean, he this deals is, in the human condition, doesn't right. he? Right. That's so. that's perfectly said, Bernie, the human yeah. condition. And that's what I was saying about the noir and everything else. Is I, 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 And I think that, you know, in this film, you know, it seems like, you know, you, there are, you know, in the beginning, I forget who says it when they're talking about, this is kind of a creepy part of town. And then somebody says, no, man, this guy's loaded, man. This cat's got a penthouse uptown. He's got this here. He's got that there. So it's like, 
you know, this isn't a, a, a low-key event. This mm-hmm. is someone with, you know, a nice fat stack. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and so, but it, but it just goes to show the film kind of parallels where, yes, these people seem to have affluence, especially like when uh, Johnny's talking to his cousin. I mean, his, uh, uh, what's he call him, Bro- brother? Uh, the agent? When uh, no, when they're in the yeah, they're in the back room, and he's pulling out that jewel, the the pendant or whatever he wants to give Delia. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, you know, yeah. it's showing that there's a lot of money going around, and so it's I mean, that, it's kind of it's not about class though, is it? No, it's, it's not. It's, it's not, not at all. Wealth. It's not yeah. about wealth, but but I think the yeah. po- but the point is that what I'm trying to say is that it does show kind of the high end of things but it yeah. also shows the low end of things the human condition as well yeah let's talk a little bit about the film itself and the way it's sort of paced which i thought was its its big strength it the film sort of paces itself leisurely first by introducing the characters one by one and establishing their roles and their characters in Rex and Delia's lives. We're not sort of like getting straight into the story, you know, boom, within the first five minutes or whatever. We're establishing, and I think it's done in an absolutely beautiful way, um, by virtue that the whole film takes place in the one house over a single evening. It really has little uh, choice but to try and establish interest in a very character-based way and by that i mean you know we start off without much exposition of the plot as such but you know we we're still quite involved in what's going to happen to them by way of this what I, i'm calling a jigsaw puzzle approach uh of the way they're mm-hmm. being introduced uh we don't meet them by way of story development but more by welcoming guests into a party which is you know something that we can all identify with uh once they're all right. there everyone's there everyone's in place okay right boom now let's get to the, the heart of the story. Um, so, uh, so you know, the first you know, person we meet is uh, Rod Hamilton, played by uh, Attenborough. As he rolls up in his car, you've already gone and said, Bernie, you know, he comes in on a stormy night and there's already your film noir trope of the storm and the dramatic music. Mm-hmm. And we know something is going to something is going to happen uh, just actually so one question though to you guys about the pacing the way how the film sort of works or the way how the film is presented to me uh, or in, in my mind is you know we get a bit of drama or we get a bit of story and then we cut to the band playing we get have another bit of story then we cut to the band playing so there's a different cutoff a definite cutoff point. I'm, I'm wondering in some people's minds whether they thought that was interrupting the story flow or that was adding to the drama. In my mind, I think it's paced really well. It adds to the drama. But do you think that the musical moments where you know, you'd know you see the band sort of cooking for a couple of minutes before they go back to the story, uh, go back to another car- couple of characters, did that work for you or do you think that was too interrupted? I think it worked really well, actually. I think it was almost like, um, you know, obviously it being based on Othello, going back to the idea of the format of a play, it's almost like it was breaking up the, the separate acts of the play. Right. And I think that that just kind of added to the uh, to the tension right. um, as things were building. And uh, the fact of the matter is, as well, the, the kind of cut scenes with the, you know, the uh, when Dave Brubeck's up there just tearing it up, or Johnny Dankworth is tearing it up, or uh, Paco whips out his bongos and starts going for it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the the music is all 
you know, unquestionably brilliant. Um, and I think it just adds to the whole experience. So, yeah, no, yeah. I, I think that worked very, very well. Even if you don't know um, the structure of Othello or you're not familiar with it, it does add to the tension. And even if you do, you know, it, it, it's still you're, you're waiting to see how they're going to present it and it's like they give you a bite-sized morsel and then they says all right now let's take a little break let's listen to some music by ding 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 you know and then they come back it's almost like a radio drama right. where you know right. you know they they would do you know they would present the play and then say you know and tune in next week to see what happens to so and so and so you know and then yeah i i really like how they did how they did it um one thing i wanted to say before i forget is to talk about patrick mcgoon Mm. You know, his character is Johnny Cousins. It, you know, there was two things that I thought was kind of odd. And that was just to me is that aside from aside from Reefer Madness, this is one of the earliest films that I've ever remember seeing somebody burning a joint in. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the other thing is, too, you would figure that from somebody, you know, who had the tendency to smoke weed, you'd figure they'd be a more laid back person. But throughout the whole film it's almost like he's on coke well he does say at one point doesn't he uh when um when johnny offers cass the joint and uh, cass says oh no I, I don't do anything you know i don't do the hard stuff anymore i just do a little bit of this yeah and you know that, that's kind of because uh, you know a lot of uh, well i don't know if a lot of but certainly some of those jazz guys we're into uh, some harder, harder drugs, shall we say? And it, it oh, kind yeah. of intimates that perhaps you but know I, he was at some point as well. It was part of the lifestyle. Well, sort of timing-wise as well, you know, in the early '60s, all drugs were bad. Sure. And people didn't realise that smoking reefer would actually matter you out. You'd just be hopped up on uh, on the marijuana, you know? Right. Acting crazy. It's like you say, it's reefer madness, isn't it? Right. You know? But I just wondered but, whether whether he was smoking a joint or whether he was doing coke, because it just seemed that one minute, you know, he, he's sitting back and being reflective, looking out at the rain yeah. and smoking his joint. The next minute, he's just like, you know, what are you doing, Rex? What are you saying, Rex? Like, you know, and he's just, yeah, I just maybe, thought it was kind of funny. I mean, there's the implication. Well, that, I was yeah. going to make that point because I, I'm pretty sure, isn't there a moment in Othello where um, uh, I, I think a, a, the, the drink, I think, what's his name, the Iago gives, yeah. um, oh, I forgot the character's name, gives him uh, a, a laced drink. Uh, right. Michael, uh, Michael Cassio laces his drink. And so the implication here, I think, is that he's going to lace his, um, his joint with something a bit stronger. Could be. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so anyway, so you wanted to say some more about Patrick McGowan? Because uh, I certainly want to uh, discuss a bit about each of the characters. And For everything that I'm familiar with, with Patrick McGowan, he was usually an actor who kind of wore, wore everything on the, on the inside. Mm -hmm. I've never, I never really knew him to be kind of a, a overly emotive actor. I always saw him as as more of a kind of restrained and kind of you know, like I say, uh, internalized kind of character. But in this, it, it's just like you know, he's scheming, he's conniving, but at the same time, he's just wearing it all on his sleeve. You know, he's not, he's not really keeping it close to his his breast. He's he's just kind of you know coming right out with what he he intends to do you know it and, and he's he's almost like the stupidest schemer on the planet you know because he because he's just telling he's telling anybody with an earshot yeah that's what i'm gonna do you know and like 
and that's what he does. And well, I mean, he's, he's like he's like the archetype bully. So the mo- the first time we see him when he comes in into um, into the film is he's getting a couple of guys to bring up his drum kit. Never mind that there's a drum kit already set up. Never mind that there's already another drummer who's already working the joint. Uh, he comes in and he says, right, okay, put my stuff over there. And he's talking like he's, uh, um, what's the expression, cock of the walk. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. yet, whenever he's speaking to the agent or he's speaking to Rex to manipulate his feelings against uh, against Cass uh, or against his wife, he's you know speaking like a really obsequious little worm. And, you know, the uh, overly talking in front of people who he considers minions one minute and and obsequious to people who he needs to manipulate the next minute it's the perfect signs of of the schoolyard bully right do you think um, do you think he overplays it a little bit or do you think he gets away with it i, I mean i think in a performance sense i i think he does a perfect job i mean look you know my my only qualm against uh, how the film is laid out and it's it's probably by necessity to the story is like all the little things that he does so we should probably explain that um, for for Johnny Cousins to establish a case uh, to to um, he, basically he wants to separate Delia from Rex on their anniversary the prick uh, so what it's he wants to do here's a piece of shit he wants he wants to he wants to convince um, Aurelius Rex that you know, he wants to plant the seed in his mind that his wife has been unfaithful to him with his best friend and so he goes and sets up recording a conversation and then editing the conversation now right that you know how he goes about it it seems a little bit too planned it 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 seems to me it would require a lot more work than you know with the technology that they had in the day (laughs) that what he had to have done within all the course of the short period of an evening so wait a minute you mean you mean you mean he didn't have his Pro Tools? He didn't have Pro Tools, didn't have Audacity. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it would take longer to, to doctor that up on Audacity, I tell you. Uh, so, I mean, look, in that regard, it's you know, a little bit, but as often happens in an otherwise really great film, you sort of think, I'll forgive you for that. I understand you've got to go somewhere with a story on this. I don't care. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to lose uh... it. So, so they should have had a, a bit where, uh, you know, he said, excuse me for a moment. I've got to step out and have a cigarette. And then you see him with the reel and he gets in taxi. <laughs> and he comes back and, and then all of a sudden it just says, you know, three hours later. And then he comes back. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, so yeah, but anyway, so yeah, that's my analysis of, uh, of the McGowan character, Johnny Cousins. You know, just this very manipulative schoolyard bully, and but you know, it's it. But he's that's the other nice thing about this is none of the characters are two-dimensional. It could have been so easy to just sort of. I mean, it, it, Cousins, he is a piece of shit, and you know, he's he's driven not because he's evil, but he's driven because he's just he's narcissistic he wants what he wants for this you know he, to get his band he knows it's his big opportunity he's been playing for rex for years and now he wants his thing I and mean, i guess that well that make, that makes him a prick but it's not it's not evil in a two-dimensional sort of bad guy in a film type of way um, he's not doing it just for the sake of doing it is he i mean he's, he's got a goal in mind and you know he's happy to step on whoever he needs to to get there yeah but he's not doing it just to be a two-dimensional villain it's you know 
quite right, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Aurelius Rex, played by uh, Paul Harris, the Othello character. Now, he Rex should be the complete opposite to Johnny Cousins. You know, he has a successful band. He's celebrating his first anniversary with a beautiful wife. And he has lots of friends celebrating with him. Yet, you know, he's... And I come back to this thing, being three-dimensional. He's very possessive, which is actually not what I would have thought... Not what I thought about Othello. He's, he's not quite as possessive, or at least not at the start. Uh, but anyway, Rex is very possessive and uh, makes certain his wife would give up her performing for domesticity, something she declares she's happy to do until a certain point in the film. But the lady, you know, the lady doth protest too much. Uh, Paul Harris plays him as a very suave, sophisticated guy. This is his evening, and little by little, it's fascinating to watch his mood go from feeling on top of the world to losing all control. Basil did, and once again, I come back to this thing of pacing. He's done it beautifully. And watching this change in Rex's attitude uh, via Johnny Cousins' manipulation really brings on the tension. It's, it's, it's more like a suspense film than necessarily a straight-ahead music film in, in that regard. But um, yeah, I, I like the fact that right off the bat, you know, we know Rex isn't just super good guy to Johnny Cousins' super bad guy. He has his insecurities. and Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is that, you know, I, for me, personally speaking, I don't know if they lay it on a bit thick at the beginning, but he really, he really comes across as kind of insecure with Delia. Mm. When he's just like, you know, you know, you won't leave me, will you? You know, you won't know. And she's like, no, I'm not going to leave you. You know, like, I mean... They they really really lay it on. They do. I I don't think I don't think it's ever overdone though. Coming back to your earlier question, Sticky, I I think because the, the the very deliberate pacing of this, regardless of whether you think his reactions to certain events later on are realistic or not, but they say right, well that's where we have to end up because this is what happens in the Shakespearean original. This mm-hmm. this is how we're going to end up, and it's over the course of one evening because it's one party. We're not going to split this up over several weeks. So we have to get to this point, but I still think it's 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 paced very well. I just that's you know I know we don't do um, what the uh, what the gentlemen do and uh, sort of talk about um, uh, most valuable thing, but I'd sort of, if we were to do an MVT, I'd say it's for this film it's 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 um, pacing. Mm-hmm. I will say about uh, Paul Harris uh, or Rex. I think as as far as acting in the movie goes, he was probably the weakest link. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think he quite had the chops to pull off the the sort of you know the subtle changes. I mean, he gets there and it's apparent and it works. But I think um, he, he doesn't quite have the chops to pull it off quite as well as you know some of the other actors do. So he's not bad by any stretch of the imagination, but he, he feels a little, maybe a little out of his depth in some scenes. I don't know. Was that just me thinking that? Um, look, until now I hadn't sort of really considered it because I sort of thought that the whole film uh, you know, was you know. The, the rest of the actors were so good and it was all paced very well. I mean, I, I, I think obviously the, the weakest of the actors were the obvious non-actors like, you know, oh, uh, well, sure, Charles yeah, Mingus yeah. and all that, but they only had a couple of lines. So, so yeah, okay, we can exactly. forgive Exactly, they're, they're more cameos than anything else, aren't right, they? Right, so. right. But I, I, look, I, I didn't think Paul Harris did a, a bad job and, you know, obviously no, no, he's, he's no, not, not, he's not so Patrick well. he's no Patrick McGowan or Keith Michelle, but... But no. I don't think, he, but I, I don't think he did a bad job. Nothing that I'd sort of say was a big weakness of the film. Let's talk about uh, another main character, Cass, 
played by Keith Michelle, uh, who's you know the other central character. We work out early that he's an amiable guy, but we also see early on uh, as his uh, girlfriend Benny uh, arrives, he's you know not very given to commitment. And I come back to this thing of them all being well-rounded, three-dimensional characters. I mean, Johnny Cousins is the bad guy, but even the good guys have their you know have their points. You know, he's uh yeah he he loves he it's loves his girlfriend, great. but he's he's prepared to have sex with her and and hang out with her, but oh go the next step and marry her. Oh. I don't know that I'm prepared to do that. It, it, it nervous makes him makes him nervous. He runs off, but um, commitment issues. Yeah, definitely has commitment. Yeah, I, I thought he was. Uh, I thought Keith Michelle was was great. I think um, he totally nailed it. He did a very good job as Cass. Mm. But could you? Here's a big question. Could you see Keith Michelle in a Russ Meyer film? You made you made the Charles <laughs> Napier reference before. I so. did. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't know. Perhaps I'll have to do some research and find. I don't. I don't <laughs> think you'd see. Uh, I don't. Think you'd see Keith Michelle running around with his dong hanging out. <laughs> Maybe some prosthetic help, you never know. Oh, it worked for Mark Wahlberg, didn't it? <laughs> and Charles Napier as well, no doubt. I'm sure that wasn't... Uh, maybe it was, who knows? Charles knows. He's not telling. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, anyway, but I think that uh, yeah, Keith Michelle acquitted himself really well. And once again, you know, as, as I mentioned before with... The other actors who were not real musicians, he, you know, when he's playing, when he's playing the sax, he looks like he's really into it. I mean, because how many films have we seen where they get actors playing musicians who it obviously looks like they don't know the first thing about yeah. their instrument? They've had no no tuition, and, and um, uh, obviously, you know, uh, did and said, right, okay, lads, I want you to all the go spend a good few, a couple of months with uh, some real musicians uh, he, hey we have uh, we have some real musicians on the set uh, well, spend some time with them and learn how you can give the impression that you're really playing and once again you know, Keith Michelle actually sort of pulled off that side of it very well but he shows it he shows a character who's very loyal very amiable but as the film goes on we sort of see this tension rising he also looks very very vulnerable uh, and he's really just you know he's got his heart in the right place doesn't want anything to go wrong he wants this night to be perfect for rex and delia and johnny cousins behind his back is uh is plotting against him he doesn't care what happens to him just as long as he gets delia for his band uh, actually sorry i want i did want to make one technical note because uh sticky you mentioned that the film looks beautiful and you know, I, mm-hmm. I agree i agree that the um the uh cinematographer i looked up was a guy called edward scaife and he'd gone and made uh film a, a few films that i know uh big hits amongst the uh the uh, ggtmc community so he made cartoon which i think might have also been directed by basil dearden uh the dirty dozen and i dark, think it was yeah and yeah. dark of the sun uh oh yeah Taylor. oh really so, oh, yeah. Wow. yeah so so uh he uh he certainly had um some good chops in the industry but, yeah but uh, I, i'm wondering whether you know under uh, did and said i want this to look noirish and um, you know, but he, he certainly came up with the goods. Uh, I, I mean, I know that it's not the style is not uncommon, but there's something about the use of black and white with that type of lighting and those facial close-ups, especially of Patrick McGowan once he's sweating, uh, that yeah, really emphasise that yeah, tension. Yeah. And, and Edward Scaife just uh, pulled it off absolutely beautifully. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, he was a big plus actually for the movie. I think. So, any other sort of thoughts about the direction of the film? Any any other points you want to make about about the uh, story? I don't want to spoil, but do you guys think for Cass, is it going to turn out okay or not okay? Uh, well, 
uh, uh, well, yeah, hmm. we go. That's that's left to us. But one thing that we will say that will only be a spoiler if you've read Othello to begin with is that the film doesn't end the way Othello does. And so I ask right. you, Tim. Okay. Yeah. I ask you, Tim. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, yeah, because I think it's it's a very good thing mm-hmm. because you know I think that again it takes liberties and it shows you you know a different way that it could end you know I mean just a different different way to present the scenario mm-hmm. and I, and I think it it gets the point across without having to go as far as the original does if that makes any sense I'm no, trying no, to no, be no. his. It makes sense to me as someone who's seen both, so, yeah. Well, as, as someone who, who doesn't uh, know Othello, um, and, uh, you know, I've not seen any of the movie versions or the play itself, um, do, do you think this has a satisfying ending? Do you think that, you know, the characters kind of get what they deserve? Or not, as the case may be? I don't know. Um, what do you guys think? I think, yeah, I, I think that in this movie, you know, there's a lot of ambiguous... Oh, how can I say this? <laughs> There's a lot of there's a lot of ambiguous endings for all the characters. That's the only way to really do it because I think I think if there's anything definitive and saying okay, this is how this is what happens here. This is what happens here. This is what happens here. You know, I think it's a smart way to go about um, kind of leaving everything open ended. Right. And that's why I that's why I asked you. You know, whether or not you thought it was good or bad for Cass, you know, and it's like, well, you know, it should be up to the viewer to decide that, I think. Yeah. I mean, because I was thinking more about the ending between Delia and Rex or, or you know, Desdemona right. and, and Othello, right. if you will, because right. their, their so ending, it's their ending that's very different to oh, yeah, the, absolutely. End, the ending of the play. But again, this is open-ended. Mm. Yeah, because because Delia asks Rex a question at the end. You know what I'm talking about, right? She says, "Are you?" You know, and he just he just leaves. That's the last of it. You know. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it's still open ended. You don't know, you know, whether where it's going to go from there. So I mean, everything is left unanswered in this film, mm. and and it's not a cop out. I think it's it's actually a, a good thing again because, like I say, in, in the original Othello, there are definitive endings. Two characters, whereas in this, it's just like, well, it could be this, it could be that, you know. It's well, I think what works really well about the ending is that it gives you enough for, for pretty much every character. It gives sure. you enough, sure, sure, kind of read it one way or another. Right, absolutely. So, yeah. 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 All right. Um, I think probably the only other thing I wanted to add to that, because this is a music film podcast, is just to say that the actual music in the film was fantastic. I mean, we've already gone and mentioned, you know, the main headlining well-known musicians, you know, Mingus and Dankworth and uh, yeah. uh, Brubeck. Uh, and, you know, because because uh, I think they wanted to have you know, make use of these guys as much as sort of using the musical sections to break up the plot, you know, do it in little I love your comparison there Tim you know radio play slots right in next week but right. um, but as much as you know to get some enjoyment out of hearing uh, the, the music played and it was it was fantastic I'm wondering you know how much of this was written specifically for the film I know that there was a, a composer attributed uh, Philip Green who I mentioned before who wrote the um, non-diegetic music for the film, you know, the opening theme uh, and some of the other bits and pieces, but uh, the music that we hear as part of the film, I'm not sure how much of that was written specifically for the film, but uh, it, it was all really, really cool stuff. And Oh yeah, the the, the Brubeck performance, man, Brubeck smokes on this. 
Yeah, oh, yeah. it's amazing. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I, I remember um, I, I put a post up on the See Here page that we were going to talk about this and put up a photo of uh, Brubeck and Terry Frost from Paleo Cinema. They'd mentioned that he'd actually seen uh, Dave Brubeck performing in Sydney many, many years ago, and he said he was a very hard hitter of the piano keys, a very, very percussive player. So, um, yeah, that would have been fascinating to see. I'm very, very jealous of you, Terry. Mm. Uh, but um, anyway, all right, so um, I think uh, unless you guys have anything more to uh, add about the film? I just wanted to uh, thank Cam for uh, pointing this out to us because this is a good one. Oh, yeah, thank yeah, you absolutely. very Thank you very much, Cam. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah I, call, I, agree, I agree with you, Bernie. This deserves, like, a big re-release. I mean, as I said, I, I've heard a rumour that it had a criterion, but if it did, it's been in and out. Uh, this needs, like, a proper re-release. I'd love to see any, um, if, if there's, like, a good documentary or, or talking heads people, you know, any any of uh, the, if there are any surviving cast members or crew or at least, you know, any uh, film scholars who have anything anything uh, to say about this film because this yeah. really should be more well known absolutely yeah it's a real um, sort of lost gem really isn't it so you listeners out there if um what we've said sounds fascinating to you the film is in its entirety on youtube to just look up all night long 1962 and um uh, hopefully you won't get uh, crossed with the Lionel Richie film clip. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, with that done, we're going to go take a break and then we'll come back for our second film for the program, which will be Bree Edwards' suggestion of Edge Play, a film about the runaways. You're listening to See Here. We'll be back in a moment. <laughs> Hi, I'm John Water. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Kuhn. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Zwingshauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. And we're back. Thank you very much for uh, listening to this episode of See Here Podcast. Morris here in Melbourne, Sticky over there in Bath, and uh, Tim in Seoul. And we're going to be speaking the second half of the show. We don't normally do this, two films in one episode, but there you go. We miss one month. We're determined to give you 12 films a year. That's how dedicated we are. And uh, this time around, we're going to be speaking about a film from 2004, uh, Edge Play, a film about the runaways as suggested by Bree Edwards. Thank you very much once again, Bree. And this film was directed by the second bass player of The Runaways, Vicky Tischler-Blue. And it looks like she took it upon herself to uh, create a public record about the history of the band, uh, both prior to her time in the band and uh, up to the end. So, um, yeah, I really, I mean, I obviously I knew of The Runaways and I'd heard, you know, some of the songs but hadn't really followed them. So 
uh, we'll, we'll talk, uh, I guess, uh, as much about the this as a film, this as a documentary for its style of presentation, as well as the events therein. You know, it's always a bit difficult to sort of know how to talk about a documentary, but I guess we can sort of like pursue both both sides. So, um, two points I wanted to bring up uh, before opening opening the floor for me. Uh, so there, there's two points obstructed the making of the film. First of all, the manager, I, I read this, is some interesting stuff. The manager uh, of The Runaways, Kim Fowley, originally requested $10,000 apparently to appear in the film, which was not in the budget. So he was then convinced to appear in the film for free if he could sing the answers to the questions. Uh, this, is, uh, this was agreed to and actually there was footage shot in that way where he answered the questions in song. However, that damn licensing, music licensing cost issue hadn't been considered, and each one of his songs required a separate license, which required a lot more money than $10,000 per song. So in the end, uh, Vicky Tischler Blue used uh, Kim Fowley footage shot uh, as separate programming for uh, VH1. So I found that an interesting uh, piece of information. And that sounds just like Kim Fowley as well. That's a really manipulative, <laughs> shitty thing to what do. A nut job. Just like him. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, I didn't know that, but I'm no, not well, surprised I, in the slightest. I went to the University of Google, you see, so um, phones sure, yeah. make magnificent yeah. stuff there. And there's plenty of music in the film. Unfortunately, nearly none of it is by the Runaways. There's plenty of music right. by Lita Ford. Uh, mm-hmm. And the other conspicuous absence in the film uh, is Joan. Joan, Joan Jett, who refused to take part in the film. And I'll have something more to say about this later on. But she said that The Runaways was her baby and achieved much in the way of music and tours and inspiration to future generations of bands. She wasn't going to take part in what she called a Jerry Springer fest. No Joan Jett meant no Runaways music, which was you know mostly composed or co-written by her so that's a very conspicuous absence from the film so we'll speak i'm sure as we go on whether that was worked for it or against it but i just thought we should open up with those two very interesting tidbits so um mm-hmm. basically i open up the floor to you guys so um uh, bernie like me i don't believe that you'd been a follower of uh, of the runaways uh well you know obviously i was aware of them and i know a sure. few songs but um i've never owned any records or anything mm-hmm. but uh, again i, I kind of knew the story to a certain extent because i've seen the um there is a uh, a biopic of the runaways oh. as well. <laughs> I, I haven't so, i haven't seen that I, I i expect that you both have things to say about that i, I haven't seen it for a while but the I'm less, very surprised the, less how said, the less said the better <laughs> Is it, uh, is it as bad as the Germs film, Tim? Have you seen that? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, oh, right, okay. <laughs> pretty much. I mean, it's 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 as about as uh, antiseptic as mouthwash. Oh, you know, it's it, it's yeah. just it's just the uh, no. Um, I wanted to say about the Runaways is that you know it's so funny because today when you look at a documentary about a girl group, you think, okay, yeah, well, what's the big deal? You know, there are girl groups all you know everywhere today, but you know, especially in Asia, you know, with K-pop and and all kinds of things. But you have to understand how profound the Runaways were in particular because at that time when they came out. There was nobody, I'd say, aside from 
the obvious influence of Susie Quattro, and or else I would attribute maybe even go as far as Ronnie Spector. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but aside from you know those real visible female figures in, in, in popular music in rock, there wasn't anybody. Well, yeah, that's that's the thing. Certainly in, in a rock context, I right. think you're right. There's absolutely no one doing, or no, no you know females doing this at the time. They were definitely blazing some trails, weren't they? Right. And I think you know, if anything, you know, women were just relegated to you know the backup singer role. And I mean, obviously, you know, I I have to also include in my in my stupid early morning uh, brain fart. Uh, I have to include Janice. I mean, that's another big one too. You know. Sure. Yeah. But um, yeah. I I think they were just so profound in, in in the fact that you know they were actually you know the first chicks that had balls. <laughs> and um, you know they were they were the first ones to lay it on the line and to show that you know the girls could rock just as hard as the boys because I mean you know you look at everything that they they came up with I mean like Cooper and Kiss mm-hmm. you know and the whole glam yeah. thing with you know the Swede and Slade and all of it I mean you know they're they they were a culmination of of. You know the glammy end of things, and also you know the heavier end of things, and 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 that actually leads to you know the ultimate, you know, um, dissolution of the band later on. But um, as as a band, I think if you stack them up against like Kiss or someone like that, you know, I think they are easily as good as, if not better. Do you know oh, what I mean? They're, oh, they're yeah. not paying imitation. They are. Oh no, uh, no, 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 no. Major they, players. They, they really, had their uh, own thing. They had their own totally. thing. And I mean, this is the thing too, is, as you know, we'll get into it about Kim Fowley, but as much as a a conniving prick he was, this is kind of funny. We have two movies that dealt with conniving pricks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, as much as a weasel that Kim Fowley was, it can't be denied that he actually was the one that was able to bring these five elements together. Sure, yeah, yeah. And, you know... And then eventually when they did come together, you know, they were a force to be reckoned with, you know. I wanted to say one thing before we get into the film itself that I I find is kind of, to me, I don't know whether it's a flaw or an asset to this film. And that is actually the fact that it was directed by one of the members of the band itself. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is kind of a, I don't know how I, I quite feel about it absolutely yet but it you know i don't know whether it tarnishes or it adds to the film because you know when you're too close to your subject matter it can really you know kind of uh influence what you're doing you know Mm. yeah i was gonna say i have some issues with the film as a film when you know not not the story contained therein we'll have plenty to say about that but uh, I do have some issues with it as a presentation, as a documentary. But I, to, to Vicky Tischler Blue's credit, I don't think that she, um, I don't think she's letting the fact that she was within the eye of the hurricane uh, obstruct from uh, telling the story that she wanted to tell. I don't think it's like saying, okay, well, you know, we're all. All innocent victims of a, a nasty right. damage. I mean, she does say that, but she also says, "But there was bitchiness within the band." Oh yeah, they that, they, mm-hmm. they all sling shit. They right. all sling shit throughout at each other. So there's no doubt about that. I think she does a fairly even-handed job considering, right? Um, because you know everybody 
in the band seem to have had you know good times but an awful right. lot of bad times and, um, and none of them are shy about coming forward and talking right. about that you know and don't so you need- I don't think she's she's trying to airbrush anything no, no. I don't think she's trying to lay more shit on you know on people or whatever right. than, there's you know, one so- thing there's one thing that's interesting and adds an interesting element to it to me is that you know um, for everything that they've got they went through the girls you know she was there and and, and to me it almost felt like uh, almost like a like a psychiatry yeah like a psychiatry yeah. session sometimes but when you know like there's a there's a point in particular you know maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves where one of the band members is really upset and she says can I stop now I didn't think it was that one that was gonna put me over but it put me over mm. and she goes you were there you were there remember and she says it's yeah, okay yeah. it's okay and she's consoling some of you know the people she's interviewing, and, but, but she's a part of it. She's she she was a part of it, so it's almost like you know she can relate. She's not she's not just sitting behind a camera. She can relate sure, to yeah. what they're what they'd been through. And then there was a part where another band member says, "Well, how am I doing? Can I have a cigarette now?" And it's just yeah. like, hey, "Yeah, go go ahead. You know, like do what you want to do. You know." But but I, I just think she, yeah, I, I think she manages. If it had been another director who was, you know, not part of the Runaways, I don't know whether they would have got quite so much out of the band members as sure. as Vicky does. Sure. So uh, again, I, I, you can't. I guess you could view that as a positive or a negative, but certainly I think it's it feels a bit more intimate because of that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I guess now, my. Oh, so what I was going to say is my issue with the film, and I'm sort of going to go back to what um, Joan Jett's problem with. So obviously up front, uh, she, she'd been notified, so right, we want to speak our minds about what this is going to be about. And she perceived, you know, she used the words, a Jerry Springer fest. And for, for my mind, apart from like, a, you know, a little bit of token, hey, we kicked ass, you know, hey, we were, you know, we, we were rocking or, or, or similar sorts of expressions. There's very little in the film i mean obviously you know, there, there's no none of their music that you hear played but even notwithstanding that there's very little talk about their musical development you know hey we got into a we got into a studio and uh lita came in with this great riff and we worked around it and um we were different from other groups of the time I mean, we took our influence from this band but we turned it around in in this way i mean they, they could have sort of gone down the metal versus punk versus power pop well, they do a little made. they do a little bit when yeah. they're talking about deep purple and and then they're talking about how joan had written some songs and like a, a, they, little, they, a little bit but not enough for my liking i mean i i understand they had a story to tell and it is it's possibly serving as a a cautionary tale um Mm-hmm. You, you want to go out there expecting fame and fortune make sure you pick a manager who you can trust or kick his ass out or you know read right. that contract in advance but uh it, it's about a band and if, right. it's a, if it's about a band i mean as as much as you know they had a, a very sad story to tell and it's worth telling but it, but they're a band. They they make music, and so sure, I wanted, sure. as a casual observer, I wanted to know well, what made you sure. special yeah. apart from the fact that right. you were a five girl or having a really bad time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Five, five <laughs> well, girls in a group that was in in a, in a landscape that was dominated by male male groups. Well, there's a couple of things that come to mind. Um, the first thing is the whole story and everything, and the film. I mean, well, the events that took place. 
are very, very similar to two things that we, two films we've covered in the past, and that those being Phantom of the Paradise and uh, the Fabulous Stains. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of a lot of similarities to both. I mean, yep. Par- Paradise, you know, being Swan. Yep. You know, with Fowley and and with the Stains, it's just you know being crammed on a bus with your band and and, and going through and. And one one eventually standing up above the rest, and um, but in terms of Joan Jett's omission and everything, I, I think it's kind of interesting how well for one, Vicky Blue. She, you ever notice that during the interview sessions, none of the other band members are together. Right. Yeah. She always interviews them one on one, but they they're never in the same room together. Yeah. Yeah. And that to me spoke volumes. And also, you know, I mean, a lot of people could see Joan Jett's omission in two ways. One being, you know, well, she, you know, she doesn't, I mean, she doesn't want to sling shit and, uh, or else she doesn't want to have shit, you know, kind of uh, thrown at her. And I mean, I can, I can see that, you know, it's kind of like, you know, looking back on Sodom and Gomorrah turning into a pillar of salt. I mean, she, she she's just looking forward and saying, you know, like, Hey, I lived it. I don't need to re- revisit it. I mean, I I can understand that completely. And but I think uh, the uh, the interesting thing as well with with Joan Jett not taking part in this is that she, despite that, she still comes out of it very well. I think. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, she does. I mean, I, I kind of had the feeling it might be uh, before watching it that it maybe it might be a little bit of a hatchet job towards her because she wasn't willing to take part but uh, if anything she comes across as probably the most uh, well adjusted and, and right. down to work and cool person in it well so. they even say that like one of the one of the band I uh, forget who said it whether it was Lita or uh, Sherry she said that Joan always seemed to be the most level headed of them all yeah yeah, totally. I was sort of I was sort of wondering about that though at the beginning of the film because you see an interview with uh, with their role model Susie Quattro, and she says something about you know walking into a hotel or wherever it was that she was and uh, seeing someone yeah. in a leather jacket just staring at her, not coming up and saying hi, I'm your fan, or just staring at her, and you sort of. I had this impression earlier on, oh, maybe she's a stalker or something. Right. <laughs> some right. people, though, I think um, some artists, it's it's all about the work, isn't it? And Joan Jett's always been fairly uh, private and reticent, I think. And, you know, the work's out there. She's done it all. Her art's out there. And you just take it or leave it. Take what you want from it. And right. I think there's, you know, a lot to admire there and a lot to be said for that. Sure. So, she's very talented. But I've always, I've always thought it was funny that Joan Jett has always been known more for cover songs than anything. Yeah, yeah. Crimson and Clover, I Love Rock and Roll, I mean... See, you know. For a long time I didn't realise I Love Rock and Roll wasn't an original, but yeah, she was a... Uh, that was, she, she was a big um, uh, covers person. I, I have to say, just as an aside, that I think that her interpretation of Bruce Springsteen's uh, Light of Day, uh, and I'm a Springsteen fan, but shit's all over his i mean he's only ever sort of done it live he's never recorded it in the studio but uh, whenever i've heard like any concert recordings or seen video footage i just think you know joan jett and the black hearts they just wipe the floor uh with uh, right. their interpretation of that song right but and, that's, uh, a, that's a digression the the one thing i want to say about the the five girls is that i think there was a real polarity with uh, the group and, and what it was was like you know Fowley was this, you know, fucked up Svengali who uh, was, you know, he was a puppet master, basically, you know. 
But I think that even the girls themselves, they say, like I think it was Lita. He didn't he didn't screw with Lita, and he he didn't screw with Joan, mm-hmm. but he screwed with Jackie Fox and uh, and Sherry because the other girls they wouldn't put up with his shit. They were they were the uh, on the other end where you know you had two different kinds of girls. I think you had the girls that were the more you know. Uh, I can't be swayed. I can't be. I can't be. You know, fucked with. And then you had, you know, the more sensitive, like bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. Well, you know, this is the, this is the ride, and I've got your golden ticket. If you want to ride the ride, you got to get on board now. You know, once they get on board, then you know, all bets are off. Mm. And I think it's that, typical. Uh, it's typical bully tactics, isn't oh, it? Oh, sure, bully, absolutely. You're able to bully. So right. if someone stands up to you, right? They're like, oh, fuck it, you know. So right. He, yeah, he reminded. Yeah. I, I've made a note. He reminds me of um, uh, the gunnery sergeant played by Arlie Ermey in Full Metal Jacket. What did they say? Like he kept calling them dog something. Uh, dog, 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 dog shit. Dog, dog, dog piss. Dog yeah, 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 yeah. So I thought, oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know they stacked shit that high. I, I just. Right. But he, he also reminded me of um, the child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh, it's been it's been a yeah, thousand definitely. years since I've seen. And it, but he's got he's just kind of like hi. Well, you know, I never really wanted to know. You know, oh, I I just helped the girls. You know, I just really wanted to help them be everything they could be. <laughs> like he just he just had that under underlying ugh, slime. Like he. Do you know, like, I've I've, um, I've got a couple of friends who uh, they met him once when he was over here in the UK. Yeah, it's about 10, 15 years ago. Um, and he, you know, he, he didn't disappoint. He was just an absolute slimy, manipulative perv. Came on to every woman in the vicinity. Right. Just completely horrible, apparently. Sure, sure. So, uh, no I don't know whether there. he was just trying to live up to his rep or whether, you know, that is genuinely who he was. Right. Well, so, you know, yeah. there are stories about, you know, before the runaways, how he was looking for a kind of entourage of like you know 12 or 13 year old girls mm-hmm. and he would post he would put posters up all the, up and down Hollywood Boulevard looking for young young twats as he called them or whatever and uh, man like you know this guy had fucking pederast written all over him I mean you know, I don't well, that I, whole uh, sort of Rodney's English disco that oh, yeah. glam thing that was going on in LA at the time uh, it was yeah it was creepy there was a lot of underage girls there you see and- this is a thing and I don't I don't mean to digress into something else but you know you guys have both seen Boogie Nights right 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 and you know when he's got the older the older producer fella and he's at the party with the young girl and she ODs mm, yep. and she's about 12 or 13 years old or whatever right you know well this is what's really insane because today we look at that and say what the hell man like this is this is deplorable like this is just you know wrong in every which way but loose but at that time in the early 70s that was you know i mean if if, if you were 15 years old and hadn't lost your virginity there was something wrong with you. And I mean, you know, there was kids all hopped up on, on lewds and red wine and everything at 12 or 13 years old. I mean, that was the order of the day. And so, I mean, for for somebody to come in on that, like, you know, Kim Fowley, 
to kind of come on that scene, it's like, you know, it's like letting a fucking lion loose in a zebra factory, you know what I mean? It, yeah, absolutely. It, it was just, it was just, you know, a kid in a candy store. And, and, and I mean, and for him being like the, the Pied Piper of, of pederasts and just, you know, uh, being able to manipulate these girls and, and what I think is like for anyone who's you know really wants to give him the benefit of the doubt the manager of the band even said you know that even before everyone said to Fowley get the fuck out we don't want you here anymore he was even looking to bow out because all the sexiness of the band had left and he didn't like Joan because Joan was too butch <laughs> that's what he says in the film right there's that scene where he's talking about Sherry uh, Curry's uh, sort of famous white corset yeah oh right and uh he says, uh, you know, we were just going for a, a teenage gel bay look. It, it was nothing sexual. It was, it was more like a, an athletic look. Athletic look, yeah. What <laughs> <laughs> are you talking about? My God. Oh, yeah, yeah. yes. That's, he says uh, that with a straight face as well. Oh, my God, yeah. Uh, parents lock up their sons. Um, and, I mean, yeah. the, mothers, the mothers knew exactly what was going on. Because, like, the one, I think it was Sherry Curry's mom said... The minute, you know, he walked in the door in an orange suit, she's just like, get the fuck out of my house. You know, like, they knew. And then, what was it? It was Sherry's dad who went and hired an investigator to look up Kim Fowley. And as soon as that dog starts barking up Fowley's pant leg, he starts flipping out and telling the rest of the band, it's her fault. It's her fault. You know, like, you yeah, tell, yeah. tell your dad to stop her. That's it. Everything's over, you know, and... And then that comes down to her head, you know, which is really fucked up. Basically, because you mentioned there about the uh, parents, Tim, uh, or, or the mothers in particular. Um, what I wanted to say about the film in general here is that what makes this story so very tragic. I mean, we, we've obviously sort of heard a lot of stories about management, mismanagement of bands and all the like. But this comes down to the fact that he was managing a, you know, a group of young teenage girls, still school age. They were being treated like shit by this authority figure that they should have been able to trust. Now, we keep hearing that rock and roll is about rebellion against authority figures like parents. And yet a couple of the runaway girls expressed homesickness and didn't appear to be emotionally ready for life away from their parents. And interviews with uh, Sherry's and Sandy's mother reveal just really how heartbroken they were. And there's, you even see a bit, we don't realize that we kept sort of cutting over to interviews with Sandy's mum. And it's only like late in the film where she, yeah. sort of, she goes into tears. And then uh, Vicky Tischler Blues points the camera at Sandy. So it's like this, almost like this cathartic AA meeting, if you will. So I'm telling right. you now. You don't know Sandy's, you don't know Sandy's sat there, do you? The camera pans across and you realize that she's been talking and her daughter right. is sat right across from her. That's a real kick in the gut. It, it, it really, it really right. very, very powerful yeah. moment. It's, it's, I mean, look, in a one way, as some a good chunk of this film is a bit tabloid, but yet there's there's still something genuinely cutting, cut and emotional there. So, um, well, there's something yeah. I wanted to say too that all adds to that is that uh, you, I want you guys, I just want your feeling on this, or maybe I'm off, but have you guys ever um, seen any documentaries or anything about? Um, cult survivors um, no I don't think so because no I've seen the odd movie about it but because I was going to say yeah, go 
when you're when you're watching documentaries about people that have survived cult experiences you get two ends you get people that say you know i was in it and it i thought it meant everything to me and it ultimately just tried to destroy my life and you know i, I had to get away because i had nothing left i was going to kill myself or whatever and it, it was it was just you know tearing out my soul and then you get the other end of it where you get people that are totally in denial saying well it wasn't as bad as everybody thought it was yeah. and i'm not really sure if that happened and i don't remember this happening and i don't remember that happening and you know and yeah you know i mean yeah there was good things that came out of it but you know and and but there you know but you get the two ends and this is exactly the same thing that you get in yeah. this this yeah. is exactly the same thing where you know you got people that were manipulated people that were promised certain things that were and they were not given them at all and then you know you've got basically girls that come out the other end of a meat grinder to become women who have to pick up the pieces and actually you know try to make sense of of yeah. what they came from you know and i, I really attribute this to a cult scenario well i, I don't think it's even a, a cult scenario it's abuse Oh yeah, it's people who've survived abuse, isn't it? Right, you know? but but I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's a but it, I say cult scenario in the terms of it's a system of control. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was um, he was an evil, manipulative piece of shit, Kim Fowley. Well, but even but I think it was even greater than Fowley, and not to say that I attributed it all to him because you know even after Fowley split the scene. They're still living yeah. in this in in this kind of black hole, you know. And they're still, you know, like when they're talking about, you know, you know, fall, falling asleep in a station wagon, you know, stacked with quarter pounder wrappers, opening up right. for the Ramones, and, you know, and all this. I mean, you know, you you start to realize, like, some people think, okay, well, if we get rid of the one element, that being Fowley, then everything's going to be all right. But even after they remove Fowley, it's not all right. Even after they remove Sherry. It's not all right. Even after they yeah. removed Jackie, it's not all right. So yeah, because you, you're describing that they was was it on the Ramones tour? I think where they where you said that they were uh, they were yeah. in the car and they were driving through the snow and they were all yeah. freezing yeah. and yeah uh, and, and we, it just sort of hit me. Now this is a group that were huge in Japan and we, you know it was still reasonably popular in the states and yet. They, you know, they were given like a this petty allowance, you know, whatever. You know, here's ten bucks to spend here to spend today. Knock yourself out. Yeah, please. get your right. big max. Yeah, it was yeah. kind of the kind of the cheap trick scenario, you know, where uh, cheap trick were like huge in Japan, and then they came back to America, and then America was like, what? Like, you know, kind of, you know, yeah. same type of thing. But um, no, I mean, it was this whole, like I say, like it was a machine. It was the machine in, in itself. That became well, I think, um, corrupt. I think because of their age, because they were teenagers when uh, when all this happened to them, they didn't really have a kind of real life context. This was right. being a grown up. This was life as far as they knew. Sure, sure. They didn't know what else to do and how 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 else to well, deal with it. You right? know what so. it also reminds me of is it also reminds me of when you see those uh, the footage of those documentaries about the uh, the preteen beauty pageants. Oh fuck yeah, yeah! You know, with the little the ten year old kids wearing makeup and tiaras, yeah. and, you know, all that. This this is totally the same kind of thing to me because it's like yeah. 
people, young young women going through the motions, not even women, uh, girls going through the motions and not even really considering, you know, the consequences or, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, of what what is going to you know what's going to go on? You know, we, we often yeah. hear about you know people having to go like in in any business, but you know particularly in rock and roll, that having to go through a rite of passage. You know, having to do thousands of miles in a car to get to a gig that's only going to pay them a hundred bucks. Um, but this sort of went beyond rite of passage. This was you know really five girls' nightmares. Uh, well, six, can yeah. Vicky Tischler Blue. Actually, so one thing I wanted to ask uh, you, Tim. So there's another woman in this, uh, Kari Chrome, who's attributed as like a, a lyricist or as a songwriter. Um, right. And we don't really know what ends up with her. We just, like find out at the beginning that she was introduced to, uh, I think, to Joan by Kim Fowley, and she you know comes on board to help them write songs. But she was never like a musician. Or, or part of the band she just wrote songs but we never sort of really find out where she ended up do you know anything about her i'm not exactly sure what I, or how she i think there i think there was a bit of a fight about uh the rights of the music because i think i think that when the runaways did dissolve there was some type of uh, legal um back and forth about who had the rights to the songs of the lyricist or you know um the artists themselves and sure. i think there was some but i think but i think you know a lot of it there was uh what do you call it uh ndas non non non-disclosure agreements i think yeah yeah there was something like that that came out of it mm -hmm. but i'm not exactly sure like where she wound up but but i i think it's kind of ironic though because i think it was either jackie or one of the girls actually wound up becoming an entertainment lawyer uh that was Jackie, yeah. yes. Yes, she did. Yeah, it was yes. yeah. So I think that's kind of ironic, you know, how, you know, th that could have came out of the fact of fighting for the rights of, you know, getting back royalties or whatever, you know. I don't think I have terribly much more to say about the situation. I think I just want to make one other point about it as a film. And as I said, this is, besides all the stuff about the music, another thing that sort of, or the lack thereof, and the fact that it was a lot more tabloid in approach, but I think... I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Terry Frost's promo for Paleo Cinema where he asks the question, are films where no single shot lasts longer than two and a half seconds <laughs> piss you off? And that was something that drove me crazy. I know that that was probably a very uh, MTV VH1 approach to mm -hmm. filmmaking in the 90s. And so this is just a product of its time in that way. Well, you, but, you say that, but this is... This is 2004, and it kind of looked like a, you know, a 1994, uh, you know, kind of grunge rock video almost. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, right. sure. I've got to say, that yeah, really yeah. annoyed me. Just, you know, there's nothing yeah. wrong with a traditional approach to interviewing a person and letting the camera rest on them. You know, traditional, okay, some people might say, oh, yeah, that's been done for thousands of documentaries, traditional talking head sort of approach. And I was watching during the yeah, week. Yeah, but it works. It, it does. I mean, look, I was watching during the week yeah. uh, the, the special that we had on the ABC down here uh, about the Saints, uh, Stranded. And, um, you know, they took the traditional approach. They had, they had a few other sort of like little bits of footage of what Brisbane was like in the 70s and uh, yeah. a few other little black and white things that sort of enhanced it that were not really to do with the story but you know sort of worked in a documentary sense but they sort of said right here's a here's a performer here's a person we want to speak to let's focus on them for a couple of minutes right 
And yeah, there's some really stupid elements in this. I mean, like, you know, there's the bit where you see, like, Lita sitting on the beach with a guitar. Hmm. And then, uh, and Sandy, they got a thing of her running in a factory. Oh, that was awful. It was, a lot <laughs> of, was terrible. It was a like, lot of, what the hell? A lot of slow-mo yeah. in this film. I, I, yeah, I like, don't what why? the hell? So, there's no need for any of that. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's just, I thought some of it was just really, or Lita. It's kind of distracting. Lita it? kissing the camera. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that that was my that was my problem with it. But I mean, as I said, if there's if there's another film that can be made that sort of shows or, or explains what their influence was, and we know that there was a huge influence not just on on girl groups, but I'm sure on on guys who wanted to. Oh yeah, uh, but I mean, like you look at. But look today, like for example, I don't know if you've heard them, Morris, but there's a band called the Donnas. Yeah, yeah, I've heard the Donnas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, the Donnas are totally the Runaways, you know. And I mean, of course, L7, and you know, you've got so many girl groups that came out of you know their their lineage came from their lineage, you know. That there's that. We, we have we have a group here in um, in Australia called the Spazzies, and they'd be uh, completely. Uh, I imagine that uh, they'd be uh, uh, would have taken huge influence from the Runaways for sure. Right now, you know, did um, Joan Jett produce? Uh, was it like the first Bikini Kill LP? Yeah, she did oh, too. So yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the whole right thing of the early nineties. Right. That was uh, they were obviously a huge influence on that as well. Right, right. Now, you know, the one thing I I wanted to say too is that you know, um, the one thing I really didn't like about the documentary though to, to tell you the honest truth was that you know I think it was I forget who said it one of them said in the beginning you know when you get one one woman who's having her time of the month that's hard enough but when you have five women who are all in sync at the same time you know it's a recipe mm-hmm. for disaster but I'm not going there but what I'm saying is what's kind of funny is that how catty they are all to each other in right. this film and a lot of it, I think, yeah. is kind of overly, they're overly catty, where it's like, well, I love you, Jackie, but... Yes, yes, you know, I, know, like, I noted that. I, she hated it. I, I love you, I love you, Sandy, but... You know, and it's like, and they're and they're just, they're just at each other. Like, they're you know, it's like, they're saying, yeah, you know, I, she's my sister, and, you know, like, yeah, she really yeah, rocks plenty, out, but... There was plenty and then of they that. throw those barbs in. I looked on these girls like they were my sisters. Well, hang on. An yeah. hour ago, you went and said something that but yeah, sisters yeah. would never yeah. have said about each other. Right, right, right. But it was like... There I was wonder throwing, if, um, if that's down this... to, to, to Kim, kind of, you know, putting them together, pitting them against each other, fucking with their heads. Well, they, they uh, seem to again, indicate the, that that's the, such. But then, uh, but then again, you know, this they're, is... They're at an impressionable age, and mm. so... Yeah. Can't take that in, and, and you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, whatever, because that was probably the biggest part, and most you know, important and exciting part of your life. But you're still you just, not gonna you can't let that stuff go, can you? Right. You're but still... you're not gonna. But you're not going to think the same way 30 or 40 years later. You're gonna well, say, well, you know, Kim Fowler is again, a impotent bastard. And I mean, like, obviously, that's what, what they should have said was, yeah, at the time, this is what I was thinking. At the time, this is my attitude. Like, that's what they should have said. Like you were saying earlier, Tim, it's uh, it's that kind of cult survivor attitude, yeah. isn't it? Sure, you know? sure, sure. Um, you know, not just Kim, but they all did a fairly good job on each other's heads. Oh yeah, of, exactly, exactly. You know, you, you can't unpick this stuff once uh, it's become part of you to, to that extent, I guess. Right. I don't know, but yeah. And even to the point, I'm sorry, I was going to say the one know. last thing. Where Lita was telling, uh, uh, what's her name, uh, Blue. Yep. Vicky Blue to change her hair 
because yeah. she said you look like me. I don't want you looking that's like right. me, like you know, like that. Oh, was yeah, just, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah. It was yeah. just like whoa, you know, like it just goes to show you how far, like you know, they were really kind of you know like jabbing each other. But anyway, a little bubble from reality they were living in. I think. Mm-hmm. I think we've uh, said quite a fair bit about uh, for for people for people who have never don't know the history of the Runaways. You know, this is a good primer. It's uh, you know because it's yeah. them themselves. You know, telling you what went down in their own eyes. But for anybody who's into the Runaways and's read the books, read Sherry's books, and has read Joan's book, and you know everything that went down, you're not going to find out anything new or prophetic in this film. Yeah. I think it has its flaws, but it is definitely an interesting. I mean, it's an interesting story, and even though the the you know the the uh, from a technical point of view, the film itself isn't that great. Um, I, I think it's worth a watch. It's definitely uh, it's definitely worth a look. I think. Oh, look, it's only an hour and a half of your time, and it's on YouTube. So um, yeah, Edge Play, uh, look for that. And um, uh, I mean, look, you know, one one good thing is it inspired me. Uh, or, all right, go listen to a couple of albums. So uh, you know, I went onto YouTube and listened to uh, yeah. the first couple of albums. I mean, I'd heard Cherry Bomb before, but um, that is the funny thing. There was all, there was one song which, for some reason, I always thought was the Runaways, but I realised it wasn't. It was a group called Clout, a song called Substitute. I don't know why I thought that was a Runaways song, but um, there you go, figured that out. But yeah, Cherry Bomb I was familiar with, and and uh, they were a group with great musical skills. And uh, you know, if they if they decide to make another documentary that talks a bit more about what they achieved as uh, musicians, then I'll be up for it. So, so you know, look, yep, watch it if you have uh, some sort of interest in the band. But um, otherwise, go search out their albums because uh, you know the, the couple that I've heard are fantastic. If you're a Susie Quattro fan, then um, you should see what uh, this inspired. And if you're if you're a fan of you know the groups that we mentioned before, you know like the Donners or the Spazzies then um, go back and see where uh, you know, who, who were uh, their inspiration. So. Sorry, I just want to say thank you to Bree for uh, suggesting this one as well. Cause Indeed, yes, thank you, Bree. Watch, it was an interesting discussion, so thank you. Mm, indeed. So we're um, uh, at the end of See Here, episode 20, and uh, it, next episode uh, will be out in October. So uh, I think, Tim, it's your choice for a film pick. So what will it be? Well, I think we're going to uh, lighten things up a little. And we're going to uh, watch a film about a doctor. And, um, and we're not, I'm not going to hit you with Dr. Dre and Straight Outta Compton. <laughs> I'm uh, going to hit you with The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. I've wanted to see this. Why? 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. I've don't Excellent. know why I haven't seen that, but that was that, that is one I've thought, yeah, I should watch that. Very good. Now I'm glad I got an excuse. That's why we have this podcast, so I can get good recommendations. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've go. not seen this one either, so uh, I'm excited for that. That's an excellent choice, Tim. Yeah. Very all, nice. All right. So if you've listened this far through to the end of the show, our thanks to you. Please uh, feel free to let other um, folks out there know that we exist uh, you can find us at uh, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here that's s-w-e-h-e-a-r you can uh, email us at podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you uh, and uh, generally yep please if, if you do join the facebook group please come up with further suggestions or just let us know about films that you're digging on that have got a musically related 
topic. Uh, always interested in uh, searching new stuff out. There's plenty of stuff. I mean, we can keep going with this for years and years, but uh, always wanting to know what is uh, new and groovy or even old and groovy, as uh, Cameron right. had alerted us to. Uh, so um, anyway, thanks very much, gents. We look forward to uh, speaking about the 5,000 fingers of Dr. T in um, next month's show. So until then, um, watch some great films, read some good books, listen to some good records. That's what it's all about. Great life. And be nice to your family. Yes. All right. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Take care. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.